uncertainty kind of like kills, kills everything. You need to be able to know when you're going to be able to check in, when you're going to be able to check out, what's going to be in the unit. Is the Wi-Fi going to be reliable? Um, is the unit going to be clean? Um, and all of that were things that we were able to, to offer. And I think in that sense, um, the product was, was really, really great. Welcome to Behind the Stays, a podcast that shares the stories behind your favorite Airbnbs and the hosts who've made them memorable. Behind the Stays is brought to you by Sponstaneous, a free weekly newsletter that brings you a carefully curated list of last minute deals and upcoming steals on Airbnb. Sign up at Sponstaneous.com. I'm your host, Zach Cruz. Enjoy the show. In every marketplace, there are the Davids and the Goliaths. While it's hard to fathom now, Amazon was a David when Borders and Barnes & Noble were the bookstore Goliaths. And don't forget that Apple was a David when Xerox, IBM, and Motorola were consumer technology Goliaths. Today, I wanna to introduce you to the David of short-term rental platforms, a company called Wander. Whether you're embarking on a family vacation, planning a getaway with friends, yearning for a workcation, or organizing a company offsite, there is a Wander for every occasion. Wonders aren't vacation homes, they're better. Inspiring views, modern workstations, restful beds, hotel-grade cleaning, and 24-7 concierge service are just a few of the guarantees that come when you stay with Wander. Wander is in search of high-end vacation homes in incredible locations around the US. Think national parks, beaches, mountains, you know the type with proven annual revenue. If you are a short-term rental owner looking to sell your property to someone who will appreciate what you've built, send the Wander team an email with all the important deets like monthly rev, monthly expenses, yada, yada, to hello at wander.com. Again, that's hello at wander, W-A-N-D-E-R.com. If Wander makes an offer, you can count on it being all cash, quick, and hassle-free. So if you've been thinking of selling, even remotely, why not start a conversation with our friends at Wander? Send them an email at hello at wander.com. In just a moment, you'll meet Dylan Petrich, co-founder of Wilder Ways, a Texas-based hotel brand and management company. Dylan was born in Paris, but he grew up in London. After graduating from university, he went to work in finance and he split his time between London and New York. While finance was fascinating, Dylan grew tired of just looking at numbers all day. He wanted to get into the game of business and become an actual operator. So when an opportunity presented itself to move into the hospitality space by joining a new startup, The Guild, Dylan took it. After a couple of years of learning a lot about hospitality and real estate and startups, the entrepreneurship bug bit Dylan. And he wondered what it would look like to start his own hospitality brand and business. Tune in to hear the exciting story of how Dylan built Wilder Ways. All right, without further ado, get ready to meet Dylan. All right, sir, we are live. Uh, I'm in Raleigh right now. Where are you at? I'm in uh, Comfort, Texas. Comfort, Texas? Comfort, Texas, yes. Where, where about Texas is that? Um, so you're you know, between Austin and San Antonio, about okay. four minutes from San Antonio, about an hour 40 from Austin. Ah, um, so, okay. you know, off of I-10. Okay. Um, so no, really cool little area in the, the heart of the Texas Hill Country. 
Well, uh, I'm uh, excited to have you spending uh, an hour with me. Uh, we've gone back and forth like several. I think I, I feel like we first connected like three or four months ago, and it's been hard to nail this nail this interview down um, for lots of really good reasons and some bad reasons, like you getting COVID. So that sucks. Um, but Dylan, welcome to the show. Happy to have you here uh, to to kind of kick us off. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask folks is to. You know, in order for them to get to know you a little bit better is to say, if I were to come do a happy hour and I were to crash it with you and some of your closest friends and I were asked, you know, I were to ask your buddies to, to tell me a little bit about Dylan, who Dylan is and, and how Dylan thinks, like, what do you think that they might say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've, I've always been kind of a, a social extrovert. Um, you know, since I was a little kid, I always loved people um, and just all types of people. You know, I, I grew up um, playing a lot of golf. Um, yep. And from a very young age, I had to, to spend a lot of time with, with just older, um, older people. And so getting used to, to speaking to, to people from all different parts of life, and I always found it, you know, really, really interesting. Um, my mom's a psychotherapist, and we talk a lot about um, the way people work and the hmm. way people get home. And so that's always been something that's been really interesting to me. So, you know, I'm, I'm I love people. I'm, I'm always outside. Um, I'm, I'm a big nature guy. Um, I'm very playful and, and, and silly, um, but also, you know, extremely competitive. So <laughs> everything we do turns into a game, um, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that's a lot of what brought me into hospitality what was this love for, you know, the outdoors, this love for people, this love for, for creating and curating experiences. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I get from giving, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a selfishly selfless kind of like an interesting <laughs> way to put it you know i i love to host at my house and i love to do all these things just because i uh, i get a lot of satisfaction from creating something and seeing other people enjoy it yeah, yeah. um but then you know on the other side I'm, I'm pretty high energy um sometimes intense person um you know i, I, I have pretty ambitious goals um and so we're, we're kind of always going a thousand miles per hour um which can be can be kind of hard um in in, in this world um, where you're dealing with, with, you know, sometimes timelines that don't really fit with, with what I want to do. And, um, so working, working through that, but. Well, dude, you sound like a great guy, man. Uh, you sound like you, you, you're, you're the full package. You're, you're fun. You're, you're, uh, playful, you're, uh, generous, right. Uh, and you're, you're business savvy. And, um, I'm, I'm pumped to talk about wilder ways and some really, some of the other cool things you all are, you all are doing, but, um, just to kind of quickly circle back on on one thing that you said, like, do you think, um, did your love for like hospitality, did your love for people, was that like inspired by by your parents? Like, were your parents big like hosts growing up? Like, did you guys have a lot of like parties and like dinner, you know, events at your house? Um, you know, my mom's side more. Um, okay. My father's um, French. Uh, he's from Normandy, so northwest of France. My mom's from Queens, New York. So I kind of always grew up in, in this kind of like a multicultural environment. I was mm. brought up in Paris, moved to London. So we always kind of grew up with a lot of different um, different cultures, people from all over the world. Um, and so just traveled a ton um, and, and met a lot of different people. And I think that that definitely got me really excited um, about understanding how how, you know, nature and nurture impacts people. Yeah. Um, my mom always hosted quite a bit. Um, we had a family friend that owned a restaurant, um, huh. and twice or three times a year we would go there. And I kind of like really quickly started becoming really interested in that. Um, you know, it was something that I found to be just such an interesting business. 
um, such a cool business, but you could control effectively the entire um, experience that a person was having from, you know, the moment that someone walks into a restaurant, you control their experience. Huh. Uh, the first touch, the first person that speaks to them, the smell, um, the music, um, and, you know, understanding that and seeing just how powerful that was. Um, you know, I, I always knew that that's kind of like the world I wanted to be in. Yeah. Um, initially really was restaurants. Um, and over time, kind of like hotels came to me, but m- more so opportunistically. And now we're trying to, trying to do both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of parallels, right? Like between, uh, the restaurant space and the, and the hospitality space, uh, you're doing, you're, you're essentially trying to create these really memorable experiences for people. And, you're oftentimes dealing with like really cranky, annoying, like hard to work with people. So, um, you know, there's the, uh, folks like you are, are a special breed. Um, oh, by the way, you're the second person. Sorry. I just remember this. You're the second person I've had on the show in the last like three weeks who grew up playing golf. Like I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe like, maybe I just grew up in like a really like weird place, but like none of my buddies, like no one like grew, no one that I know, like grew up playing golf, but Conrad, Conrad O'Connell, who, um, uh, who is the CEO of uh, Build Up Bookings? I don't know if you've heard of them. Anyways, he he was on the show a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me like, yeah, I grew up playing golf, and now you said that. I have not heard like I I feel like that's something that you get into like in college, maybe in high school if like you're really close with your dad and your dad's really into golfing. But I don't feel like that's something that like you're. It's not like little league, you know, like it's not like you know pee wee football or anything like that. So that's kind of funny. That's kind of interesting. Do you have a lot of friends that like grew up playing golf? No, not really. I mean, it was, it was kind of a weird one as well. We, we, I mean, grew up in Paris next to this small park that had um, a net. It was not even, not even a real driving range. It was just a golf net. It was about 30 yards deep. Um, and you know, every, every weekend we would go there on, on Saturday mornings. And, um, one day my mom just said, Hey, do you want to you know go hit some golf balls? And, and, you know, saw that I had a knack for it and then very quickly just decided, well, maybe that just becomes the Saturday morning activity. And I would take, you know, 30, minute session. And, and I just happened to get really, really lucky over there with a coach that, that, you know, loved teaching you know, young kids. And, and there was a lot of like small tournaments for, for juniors. And huh. very quickly I got into that, you know, competitive mindset. And so started competing from a really, really early age, um, in a lot of, you know, uh, national tournaments in France really? and that kind of just became my thing. Dang. Um, okay. Yeah. So were you trying to go pro? Like, was that like a goal? Um, you know, unfortunately in Europe, um, sport is just not as big of a focus when you're growing up. Sure. Um, you know, the way the education system, especially in France is set up, um, you don't do that much sport. So if you want to go pro, you, you go to these, you know, special sports schools from a very, very early age. Um, my parents were pretty, um, pushy in terms of like forcing me more academic route. Yeah, um, yeah. so we always thought, well, maybe when I moved to the U S for college, um, I could kind of like take it back up. So no, I think at, at, at my best, um, you know, I was probably scratch golf for at hmm. 15, 16 and, and, um, could have maybe played on, on for division two team in the U S but, um, got into a good school in, on the East coast and, and decided to, to kind of pursue that instead. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating, man. Wow. Cool. So is it, what I'm, what I'm sensing here is that like, if you, if your kid 
is interested and and as, ends up playing golf uh, when, gro- when when they're growing up, the odds of them like joining the hospitality space as an entrepreneur go way up. That's what that's what I'm taking away from uh, from your story and Conrad's. Um, so, dude, uh, a few years ago, I think it was like four years ago, you moved to Texas from London, if my memory serves me correctly, and you became chief of staff uh, at the the Guild, which I I think at the time was like a Sonder competitor. Um, for those of you, for those who might be unfamiliar with the guild, uh, I, I also understand that you were working in investment banking before that. So like what sparked the move? How did you figure, like, how did you discover the guild and like, what was it about this position that was particularly compelling? Yeah. Again, I feel like I was extremely fortunate in a lot of the decisions I made where, um, a lot of it was just purely opportunistic, um, uh, you know, out of out of college, um, I kind of went and did what seemed like the safe, safe choice. Um, went, took on, a, took a finance job, went to work for Lazard. Was very, very fortunate to have some amazing mentors there um, that really kind of like pushed me, um, taught me a ton. Um, you know, that's where I really developed a lot of my work ethic. Um, I learned a really, really solid basing uh, on, on on the accounting side, um, and just learned how to work, learned how to think, learned how to look at businesses, uh, understand what made a good business and what made a bad business. Hmm. Um, but I also, you know, very quickly realized that I wanted to be an operator. Um, you know, I, I thought it was fascinating, um, to speak to, to, you know, the CEOs and CFOs of these, you know, larger, uh, publicly traded companies. But, uh, I always felt like, you know, I was, you know, just looking at numbers, um, and not really having, um, a real impact on how these businesses were being operated. Um, you know, about three years in, um, I was working between New York and London, uh, initially in New York, my bank sent me to London. Um, and you know, I, I got to a point where I felt like I was plateauing a little bit. Hmm. Um, I also felt like I wasn't just as passionate about what I was doing on a day-to-day basis. And I just wasn't, you know, using my skill set effectively. Um, you know, I was, I was good at my job. I was, wasn't great. Um, and I was never going to be great because I didn't, I didn't love it. Um, and so, you know, I was, still young. I had very little baggage. Uh, I'd saved up a little bit of money and I felt like it was, you know, if I was going to take a risk, it was probably the time to do it. Um, also on top of that, you know, the market was, was roaring. Um, you know, there was VC capital, um, everywhere. And so I started, you know, looking at potential opportunities left and right. Um, a buddy of mine, Sam Holland had recently, you know, left his consulting job to join the guild, um, uh, in, in kind of like, a a growth and strategy role. Hmm. Um, and he sent out an email to, you know, our network, um, you know, saying that the company was just raising a series A and we we're going to, was going to be hiring for, for X, Y, Z role. Um, and that's when I met, you know, Chris Herndon and, and Brian Carrico who started the guild. Um, and you know, it, it, it felt like the right fit. Um, yeah. it was a way for me to get into hospitality. It was fairly de-risked. Um, they had raised some money, uh, and they were about to, to really go out and try to grow the business. So it was a really interesting time for me to, to come in, and then that chief of staff role was really kind of like a perfect fit. Um, you know, I, I could be a generalist. Um, I could leverage some of the skill set that I had learned with, with my finance background, but I was also really going to get a ton of exposure to the to the ops role. Um, so, you know, it, it made a ton of sense. I'd never been to Texas. So that was kind of like a <laughs> shot in the dark. Um, you know, I had a, a really kind of like complete misconception of, of what Texas would be. You know, growing up in France, you think, you know, Texas is is you know, tumbleweeds and cowboys. Yeah. yeah. Um, and really <laughs> when you think of Texas, you really see West Texas. 
Um, so I, you know, I was pretty shocked when I got to Austin and, and I really fell in love with it. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the opportunity to, to join a fast growing startup that was well capitalized in a space that felt like there was just so much potential. Um, you know, I think unfortunately a lot of the players in the space didn't make it I'm happy to kind of talk a little bit more about that, but, yeah. um, the way these guys were looking at, at, um, rethinking, you know, hospitality in an urban setting, um, and bridging that gap between the hotel and the short-term rental market is, is, is super interesting. And, and there's, um, a ton of value to be created there. Yeah. On, on that note. Um, and again, like I understand that there's probably some sensitivities here and, you know, I don't want you to say anything you're going to regret or anything like that, but just like from your, from your perspective, like, you know, what, what was sort of the, like what aspects of, of the guild, the, the initial idea, do you think like this was spot on, like this was, this was really, really, really good. And then from an execution standpoint, or just from a, I don't know if it was like market forces or, or what, what have you, but like, what, what were some things that you think in, in hindsight, having been able to reflect a little bit, like what were some things that like weren't great or, or could have been done better? Yeah. I mean, I think what was really interesting is you had, you obviously, the experience that you got from staying at the guild or, or some of our competitors in, in my mind was um, so much more enjoyable when executed correctly than, than a hotel. I mean, hmm. the way I saw it is, so, you know, you're a corporate traveler um, or consultant, you travel a lot. Um, a lot of the times you're in the same city um, and you're traveling, you know, Monday through Thursday. Um, the idea that for the same price that you would get a 300 square foot room at the JW Marriott, you could get a 700 square foot apartment with a kitchenette, um, a washer dryer and a dedicated living area seem like a no brainer. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're in those small hotel rooms, you end up working, sleeping, eating from your bed. Yeah. Um, yeah. you start developing poor habits. You eat out a lot. You can't wash your clothes. Um, it, it you know, it, hotels have done a really good job at, you know, building common areas where you can do a lot of that, but having all of that in the comfort of, of a home, um, was, was extremely appealing. And I think what the guild did really well is really try to tailor their, their, their product towards these corporate travelers. Um, we had some really awesome pilot programs that did really well with some of the top consulting firms where we would home house, you know, entire case teams, 20, 30 people, um, in one building on one floor. Um, and, and it was just so clear to us that the experience that these people were getting was, was vastly superior, um, from what you would get just at a traditional hotel. Yeah. Um, you know, then on top of that, you know, th there was a massive opportunity to make Airbnbs, uh, were, were really short-term rentals more, make the experience more reliable, more consistent, more frictionless. Um, I think, you know, what, what people love about short-term rentals, um, is the fact that you're, you know, in, in more of a home setting. Sure. Sure. Um, you have more space. Um, you have somewhat more flexibility. What people don't like is that it's not reliable or consistent and yeah. your experience is very much dependent on the host. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you have reviews and you have ways of knowing whether or not the experience, you know, you, you can increase your, your chances of having a good experience, but, but you're still dealing a lot of the times with, with a decent amount of uncertainty. And so corporate travel um, and people traveling for work, uh, uncertainty kind of like kills, kills everything. You need to be able to know when you're going to be able to check in, when you're going to be able to check out, what's going to be in the unit. Is the Wi-Fi going to be reliable? Um, is the unit going to be clean? 
Um, and all of that were things that we were able to, to offer. And I think in that sense, um, the product was, was really, really great. Um, I think, you know, what, what eventually, what made it really difficult um, was that you're effectively retrofitting, um, you know, assets that were not built for a specific use case into yeah. that use case. Yeah, you know, You're working yeah. with multifamily buildings, which are, you know, apartment buildings, and you're trying to turn them into hotels. Um, so, you know, most of the time, a lot of these buildings were built differently. The signage yeah. is yeah. terrible. The access points are really difficult. Uh, and so you're either having to do some costly retrofitting of the assets, and that's really hard to do because you have to work with the owners that don't necessarily want to do it. Um, or you're having to put together some, you know, somewhat janky methods to get these guests into the rooms. And so, you know, sometimes the experience for the guests wasn't as frictionless um, as it should have been. Now, also what we saw with the market is, you know, over the two years um, that I spent at the Guild, the whole, that entire market um, of effectively, you know, what we did was an arbitrage play. You know, we rented for you know, one to three years and then we rented out, you know, between one and, you know, three nights. Yeah, um, yeah. Over time, what you started seeing is um, multifamily owners um, catching on to the fact that this is increasingly going to become um, a, a larger piece of the market. And so instead of working with a single operator or, um, you know, signing traditional leases, you started seeing building owners especially with new buildings doing RFPs. Hmm. Um, you would have, you know, multiple operators, you know, the Guild, Sonder, Lyric, Stay Alfred, Domeo, Casa, Mint House would all um, apply. Um, and so by doing that, what the owners of the buildings were able to do was they were able to be able to, to drive up the price. Sure, sure. And so we were no longer, you know, when we when you start, when you when we started the business, um, you were effectively getting a discount to, to a discounted rate versus your, you know, average, you know, traditional renter. Why? Because, you know, we were coming in and we we're saying, well, instead of renting one unit, we're going to rent 20 units. Yeah. And um, for a longer know, period of time, you know, two, three for a years. a longer yeah. period of time. And and they had these guarantees that, that building owners liked. Obviously that that's very, um, that works even better in markets where you had, you know, softness in the multifamily space or where occupancies were lower in really hot markets like, like Austin, where, you know, a traditional multifamily might already be running in the high nineties, um, it becomes less attractive. And so on top of that, when there was more competition for these leases, um, owners realized that, that they had a lot of leverage and that they could push us to pay, you know, you were no longer getting that month free rent that the traditional renter was getting. And then over time you were actually, you know, you were paying something completely different than what they were paying, you know, yeah. and 20, 25% above what market rate was. Yeah. And then on yeah. top of that, you know, you had a lot of players that had raised so much VC capital um, that they were more focused on growing the business than growing it in a profitable way. Sure, sure. Um, so you, you get, yeah. So the the economics end up like not really making a lot of sense at the end of the day. And that's tough. That's tough. You can't, you, you know, you're, you're a David trying to like take on a Goliath and it's challenging. You're a kick-ass Airbnb host. In fact, you've done such a great job at marketing your short-term rental on Instagram that you're pretty much entirely booked for the next six to 12 months. And while it doesn't happen regularly, every so often there's a cancellation or just one random three-night window of availability in the middle of the week. 
Now, posting about the fact that you've had a cancellation or that you've got just three nights left in February on your Instagram story is a great start, but what if you could automatically notify interested guests the second a cancellation comes through? And that's where Ping comes in. Ping makes it easy for guests to be notified when their favorite Airbnbs become available. Ping is a simple widget that lives on your website or your direct booking site and integrates with your Airbnb listing and allows your fans and followers to sign up to be notified if their preferred dates become available. Here's how it works. Jimmy sees that you're booked for the whole month of October, but he wants to be notified if any three-night window in the month becomes available. Jen is a returning guest and wants to be notified if any week in June, July, or August becomes available. In a matter of seconds, Jimmy and Jen fill out this simple form and will be pinged if their requested dates become available. And as a host, you will immediately get pinged via email with Jimmy and Jen's contact information and requested dates, which allows you to build up your own database of guest email addresses. Ping, it's what the best Airbnb hosts use to maximize bookings. Sign up for free at www.bnbping.com. Ping. Brought to you by Spontaneous. So, so at what point during like this this journey does the idea for Wilder Ways begin to spark? Like, was it while you were at the guild? Was it once you left? Like, what's what's the story there? Um, you know, I think it it kind of started when I did my stint back in London um, after college. So I'd been you know living in New York for a couple years, moved back to London for a little bit what I very quickly realized was just the ease of, of, you know, disconnecting and how easy it was to do what I call these accessible escapes. Hmm. Um, you know, in, in London, um, it was, you know, I could just get on pretty much any train, go anywhere two hours away from, from London and find a really cute little town with a nice little hotel or a and b or, or, um, an Airbnb and, and do a weekend trip out of it. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was affordable and it was a ton of fun. Um, and, you know, w- when you're in New York, you somewhat have that hat. It's, it's less, exp- it's definitely less affordable, um, but you, you can go to, to the Hamptons, to the Catskills, um, you know, to the Hudson Valley. Um, and, and so you can escape. Um, but then, you know, what I felt was traveling across the U S I felt like that didn't exist in a lot of places in the U S it exists around, tier one cities exists around New York, San Francisco, um, LA, um, you know, you have the Napa's, the Sonoma's, uh, but as soon as you get to, to kind of tier two and tier three cities across yeah. the U S and I experienced that firsthand in Austin, I felt like that market for, for retreats and for accessible escapes wasn't as, um, developed. Um, and so when I did come back to the U S I did um, a road trip, um, and for 14 days, we, we drove um, from, you know, Seattle to Austin um, in a, you know, old school 1994 Jeep. Nice, um, nice. It was w- one of the coolest trips. But one of the things you realize, I mean, one is just how beautiful the U.S. is, um, but two, just how undeveloped it is in certain areas. Um, and, and you have you don't really have the concept of like local economies. In, huh. in a lot of these places in the U.S. Yeah. And so I saw that and I kind of felt like, you know, there was a massive opportunity to go to these tier two and tier three cities and try to create these accessible escapes because the, the raw beauty is there. A lot of the times, you know, you have some really cool assets, but they just haven't been renovated. They haven't been updated and they're not being run in, in a way that, that made um, 
a, t- a ton of sense. Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. So you have all these observations. You think, hey, maybe there's some some opportunity, especially like what I what I love too is like you got really niche. Like, hey, like let's focus on tier two, tier tier three cities, and like what what is like two hours around like Austin, right? And like where where are people in Austin going for from their escapes? And I get that's that's just such a savvy and sort of like smart way of thinking about things. And I feel like now like more and more people are like, are like catching on to this, right? And like there there's more of these things popping up. But a few years ago, right? Like yeah, you were you were probably a, an early mover here, so. Talk us through, you know, um, how you get it started, where the name Wilder Ways comes from. And then I believe like when we were chatting, uh, I guess it was a few months ago, you were telling me about like all these like subsidiaries and like other like, you know, uh, uh, wings, if you will, of the business that had sort of like developed around Wilder Ways. And as you were explaining it to me, it, it sounded like you had created this really cool like flywheel for, for y'all self. Um, and so to talk to us about how you get it off the ground and then how you eventually end up spinning up these, these other, uh, wings of the business. Um, and then I want to dive into, after that, I want to dive into a little bit more about kind of like where you're at right now with, with all this. Yeah, no, happy to do that. Um, yeah. So, you know, COVID hit, um, the guild gets, gets impacted pretty heavily. Um, you know, we signed these long-term lease liabilities, um, and suddenly you know, corporate travel went to zero. So, you know, your Monday through Friday, um, you know, it was really hard to fill in the rooms, your weekend, which was typically always booked because, you know, the, the, the short-term rental industry in, in Austin had been booming, um, started, you know, really struggling there as well. Um, and so the writing was kind of on the wall. Um, it was going to be really, really hard. Um, the company was going through a, a pretty meaningful restructure. I stayed on as, as we kind of like worked through that. Um, and then it kind of felt as though the timing was right um, for me to kind of move on to the next opportunity. Um, I had a really, really good relationship with both of the founders. Um, one of the founders is um, one of our largest partners um, in, in Wild Ways, both an investor, an advisor, both um, in our management company and, and on a lot of our real estate deals. Um, and so, you know, I got kind of, you know, had the confidence that I needed to, to go out and and we had this idea. Um, I actually pitched both founders, um, you know, about a year into me starting, in, into me working with them, about the idea of, of creating these guild outposts. So, you know, we had this captive huh. audience, these corporate travelers coming in during the week. Um, there was like this cool concept of like all travel for consultants where you know, your consulting firm would actually let you, you know, go away on the weekend rather than going home because they're paying for your flights anyways. And so I kind of said, hey, why don't we build these outposts? You know, we have all these people, let, let, let's build it. Um, and, you know, they kind of always said, look, let, let's focus on this. You know, once we become big, you can, you can do that. But it, it kind of felt like the right thing to do was, was for me to go out and, and do it on my own. Um, also, you know, along the way, I was, you know, fortunate enough to, to purchase a home in Austin. Um, I was traveling a lot for work. So when I wasn't there, you know, I, was, I put it on Airbnb. Um, and, you know, my first year of owning that home, I paid for the entire mortgage, um, by just arbitraging it when I wasn't there. Dang, um, that's amazing. So I kinda had, yeah, I, I kind of decided I had, I had my, my make me move number. And so I actually had the property listed, you know, the entire year, every day. Um, it just was at a number that if you paid that number, um, it was worth it for me to go and, and either travel, um, you know, stay with a friend and, and, you know, buy them dinner, um, or just, find a place to crash. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that very quickly, I realized just the, the power of that. And, and that made, give me a lot of confidence that, uh, we'd have enough time to, to figure it out. 
Um, and so, you know, I've been speaking to one of my really good buddies from, from college, Franklin, um, who now is my business partner about this. He was, he was at the end of his career at WeWork, which is, you know, interestingly enough, there's a lot of parallels between, you know, the guild, Sondra, sure, WeWork. Sure. These are arbitrage places with different asset classes. Um, and so, you know, he, he loved the intersection of, of hospitality and, and, um, and real estate. And he had looked at a lot of these concepts too, when he was at WeWork and we kind of shared that that European um, cultural kind of like background that, that made, made us feel like there was just so much we could do in the U S to recreate some of what had already been done in Europe. So he moved down here. Um, and at first, when we first started the company, um, we thought that we would do a lot more ground up development. Um, you know, we felt like if we needed to, um, if we wanted to build something that made a ton of sense, we needed to build it from the ground up. We needed to control everything. You know, that was one of the key things that came out of, of my time at the Guild was um, urban hospitality was really crowded. Um, you know, there was so many competitors trying to build hotels in the city, whether it's, you know, the, the big the big brand names, you know, the, the Marriott's and, and the bigger players or, you know, the smaller boutique guys that were making, starting to make a lot of noise. You know, Bunkhouse is a big group in Austin that was bought out by the Standard and the proper hotel was coming. Uh, the Thompson Hotel is now in here. Um, and, and you know, the larger groups are buying the smaller ones. Yeah. So we didn't want to compete against those guys. You know, we didn't have deep enough pockets. And then the second thing we felt was that um, in order to um, really be able to control the experience, you needed to control the real estate. And so you somewhat needed to be in bed with the owner. Um, and so that's kind of like where we thought, well, um, you know, in the beginning, as we start our career um, and we build out this, this wild aways brand, uh, we need to have a lot of control. And so what we felt the only way to do that was to actually um, build the asset ourselves and then manage it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think we were um, probably a little naive. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah. you know, I think, I think we, we probably took on a little too much yeah. and we thought we were invincible and, yeah. and, um, so we went out and we looked for property. Um, we looked at about 75 ranches, um, over the first six Jeez. months. Okay. Um, you know, all, all, lot, all like what within like a one to two hour yeah. radius of Austin or what? Okay. Two hour radius of Austin. Okay. Yeah, we, we kind of like, we looked at the map, we drew a circle around Austin. Um, we kind of picked these, these areas where we felt there was a ton of opportunities for a number of different reasons. And then we drive about five hours a day. We met with about a hundred brokers. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. One funny story. We were, um, out near Johnson city one day. Um, you know, Franklin, Franklin and I are, are both, um, you know, we're wearing linen shirts and shorts cause it's, you know, a hundred degrees. I think I'm wearing Converse and I'm getting burrows all over my, my feet. Um, and we, we go out there and we meet this broker and, you know, these guys are all wearing Wrangler jeans, boots, tucked in shirt. You know, I'm, I'm sweating my ass off. And, and this guy is, you know, not one drop of sweat. Um, and, and we do not understand how he's doing it. And so we get in, in one of the, you know, one of the mules, he's driving us to the property and, and me and Franklin occasionally will speak French to one another. And at one point, you know, he turns around and, and he goes, Oh yeah, y'all are my Italian cowboys. And I go, wait, what? what? He goes, yeah, I, I heard about y'all. Y'all are my Italian cowboys trying to buy a ranch out here to make a hotel. And so it was funny, you know, we'd been the Italian yeah. so long and, yeah. and these guys thought we were Italian um, <laughs> so for a while. I thought, should we just be the Italian Cowboys? Should, should that be, you know, our name? But 
Yes. Yeah, so so we, we looked for property for a really long time. But what we felt was, um, you know, there's a lot of land in Texas. Texas is a really big state. You've got 30 million people in Texas. One, one thing you don't have much of is, is live water. Hmm. And so our whole thing was, um, you know, over time, you know, in order for this property to be special, we need a few features that, that differentiate us. And so, um, you know, at some point, you know, we got, we found the perfect property um, right outside of Wimberley. Um, so you're about an hour outside of Austin, about the same amount of time from, from San Antonio. Um, you know, just, it just felt like, like the perfect spot. We had 1400 feet of river frontage, um, you know, this amazing kind of like viewpoint overlooking the river and a uh-huh. bluff on the other side. So we felt kind of like completely protected. Um, and we know we, we went in for it. We, we put in an offer. Um, we raised a little bit of equity capital. Um, we had, you know, we couldn't get a bank to give us a loan at that point because, you know, Franklin and I didn't have, we didn't have a salary at that point and we didn't have, you know, really strong balance sheets. So we convinced one of our investors to give us, to give us a private loan. Um, and, you know, we, we got, we got the deal done. Wow. And so that was, you know, the first purchase um, that we ever made, you know, back then we didn't really know if Wild Aways was, you know, what Wild Aways was. Um, today it's, it's very clear, you know, Wild Aways is a management and development company. Um, and then we set up another company called Outpost Capital, which is a real estate business that actually owns the properties. Uh, uh, but back then, you know, none of that was, was really differentiated. We just knew we had this property and now we were going to put together this project. Um, so the next thing we did we need to do was, was to build a team. And so, you know, we went out and we, we decided that the best way to do it was to find an architect that, that we believed in and we wanted to do something really different. You know, um, the Hill Country, there's a lot of Hill Country modern, a lot of life, limestone, a lot of projects that look alike. And we said, no, we, we want to do something really, really different. Um, so we found this absolutely badass architect called Tom Kundig. Started, he has a firm called Olsen Kundig. Ah, yes, uh, yes. I, I stayed in Olsen Kundig in um, in Seattle, or right right outside of Seattle in, um, oh gosh, what was the name of that town? Quincy, Quincy, Washington. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah. He, was it the Rolling Huts? Uh, it was, no, it, uh, the development was on the Cave B Vineyard. It's like right on the gorge. Um, it's freaking ridiculous and, and just beautiful. It was like a one bedroom, like, you know, mostly glass sort of like rectangular sort of, uh, uh, structure. Mm-hmm. Anyways, you're, you can tell I'm clearly not an architect, but, <laughs> but it was a, it was beautiful. It was like unbelievable. Anyhow, good stuff. Good, good, good quality stuff. Yeah, no, we, we got super, super lucky. I mean, I had a bunch of friends um, who had graduated um, with architecture degrees. And so I spent a lot of time talking to them and telling them, you know, our inspirations. And one day I said, look, we, we need, to, we need to find, you know, the, the poor man's Olsen Kundig. Mm. And they said, well, w- why do you need the poor man's Olsen Kundig? And I said, well, I mean, you know, he, he's, he's working with all the largest hotel firms and, and luxury hotel firms. I mean, does he have time for, you know, for the small guys? And he said, well, just give it a chance. And so we, we now bothered their marketing department, you know, every day for, for a month. And then finally um, <laughs> I got an email back and they said, well, why don't you just send me something that I can forward to Tom and send it to Tom. And next day I got a call and they said, Hey, Tom wants to speak to you guys. And, wow. and so, I mean, that I was like, wait, Tom, Tom Kundig. And like, yeah, so that, that was, it, was, it was awesome. I mean, he jumped in on the phone and, you know, he couldn't have been easier to talk to and, and mm. down to earth and real. And, and he'd been on a biking trip in Wimberley. So he knew exactly, he knew the area. I think he understood uh, the direction that Texas was going in. I think he loved this thesis around accessible escapes. 
you know, he's someone who travels a ton for work. Hmm. And so, you know, we, we really pushed on this idea that, um, you know, people want to travel more local. Um, I mean, COVID, you know, even exacerbated that people realized that, you know, traveling is a hassle. And so if, if you have something that's, you know, 80% of, of what you can get in Tulum in your backyard, then maybe you're just going to go in, in your backyard. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, we wanted to make it, you know, so easy, so convenient. And then this idea that we would really focus on tier two and tier two and tier three cities, where we think there's going to be kind of like massive growth as, as, as people move away from tier one cities, as, as our generation really starts caring about quality of life. And so, you know, he was all bought in and, and loved the idea and, and kind of told us that every year they keep some space um, to work with, with the smaller guys that, that one day could, could become the bigger guys. So we, you know, we got him on, we got him on board and, and that kind of like was, was one of the big aha moments um, in, in kind of like the growth of wild ways, you know, we went from being, you know, two, two guys walking around with, with pitch decks to um, you know, two guys that own, you know, a really, really awesome piece of land and who were managed to convince one of the biggest architects um, of the moment to, to work with us. Yeah. And that opened a lot of doors. Dude, and, and I mean, that that's, kind yeah. Of, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I go ahead. Go finish your thought. No, no, no. I mean, and, and that was, you know, I, I didn't, I don't think I fully understood or, or realized before that just the impact that, that um, specific partners could have on, on your growth and, yeah. and, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people um, make, makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. So, so getting this land, right. And then getting this, uh, epic partner, like, are you like, what, what, what's the, like, have you developed homes on the property yet? Like what, like how many homes are you developing on the property? Like, can you just describe a little bit more in a little bit more detail, like what the actual project is? Yes. So so that, that's, um, our, our only, and, and for now it's our only ground up development project. Um, so, you know, we worked with um, we worked with with the Olson Kundig team, and then DWG was a great uh, landscape architect firm out here in Austin on on designs and plans. And and you know we're the plan is to build a sixty key boutique retreat um, on on the Blanco River. Wow. Okay. Nice. Um, and so you know we're we're really close to to going out to the market with that. Um, and and you know that's that's an awesome project. It, it's really kind of like our, our flagship project. Um, but it's also kind of like what opened the doors to um, kind of like the, what is today our, our, our larger business, which is actually buying existing hotels um, and renovating them and operating them. Nice. Nice. Um, so, so you, you start off with this flagship project, it gets a lot of attention. You, you guys are, you, you did it, you know, you put a ton of work in, got these cool partners, this is in development. And then you start looking into other opportunities. Like how, how are you like deciding, how are you like able to like stay focused? Like, like, are you guys like, like, do you have a, like, w- w- I guess what, here, here's a better question. Over the next 12 months, like what's, what's the goal? Like how many, how many properties how, you know, how are you re-outfitting these, these properties? How are you deciding sort of like where to throw your time and your energy between all of these, like very interesting, but I would imagine also very time consuming efforts. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, kind of like when, as we were raising money for, um, you know, the Palmetto, um, one of our investors, um, you know, voiced his, his interest in, um, making, a larger investment and, and partnering with us on, um, you know, the acquisition of existing assets that we could manage, um, straight away. And so we always thought, well, we're always going to have kind of like these, these larger projects that are going to take a really long time to develop. Sure. Um, it'd be great to have a stable 
income stream yeah. um, that we yeah. can rely on. And so we're not just waiting for this big thing to happen. Uh, also, you know, in development, it kind of like ebbs and goes, um, you know, the, the, the work comes and in, in phases. Yep. yep. Um, and so, um, you know, we found this awesome um, small kind of like roadside boutique hotel called the Mountain View Lodge. Um, you know, 15 minutes from the Palmetto, 45 minutes from Austin, two miles outside of the downtown Wimberley. Um, and, you know, that deal kind of just, it was there. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. we saw it and we kind of, we pitched it to this investor and, and you know, he liked the thesis. Um, it, it felt like it was the right size um, for us to take on. And, and so, you know, within, you know, three months after we purchased the land, uh, we bought this existing hotel. And that kind of like, you know, was another big trans- transformational moment for, for Wild Aways. Um, you know, we took it over in middle of February um, of last year, which was when the major freeze happened in Texas. Um, so our first day at the property, we turn on the water. Oh, God. And there are 15 pipe bursts. Oh, jeez, um, dude. Franklin and I... Um, we didn't even, I mean, I didn't even know what the difference between, you know, PEX and, and copper and, and PVC and yeah. I didn't know how to solder. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, you know, we were out there, you know, cutting PVC and, and figuring out what a 90 was and, and learning how to solder and, and getting the property back up and running um, as quickly as possible. So we could, you know, start hosting guests again. Um, so that was a huge learning experience, you know, taking over that property, you know, you, you go in with a ton of ideas thinking that you can move really, really quickly. Um, and, and, you know, we got big slap in the face. Um, but we were really, really fortunate, um, that, you know, we were able to make improvements pretty quickly and yeah. the performance of the asset has been, you know, tremendous. Uh, we increased NOI by 50% in our first year Jeez. operating. Um, wow. we did about an 11% yield on costs out of the gate. Um, we turned over the entire team. Um, we're now at a point where we hired a GM who manages that property. Um, and so Franklin and I are no longer spending kind of like, um, our time day to day, um, on that property. Uh, but we're more so overseeing the team, which has, you know, we have a GM on site and then he has a team of, of, um, you know, housekeepers and, and front desk agents. Um, we're in the middle of a reservation there. Um, our whole thing has always been about phasing renovations so that you don't actually have to close down the asset. Hmm. Um, so you're not, you know, completely cutting down the cash flow. Um, you know, and, and then we learned from there and then decided that we like this strategy of buying these, these subscale assets in these growing markets. We also felt as though if we bought multiple assets within a, within a specific area, we could do this idea or this concept of like complexing, which is simply just sharing resources across multiple assets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, operating leverage is real. Um, you know, the difference in staffing between a 20 room hotel and a 25 room hotel is, is very limited. Um, but you know, you can now spread out your costs over those five additional rooms. And so, you know, we, um, found another property called the green river Inn, which is this really, really awesome small hotel on the Guadalupe river. Um, you know, a five minute walk from green hall, which is one of the oldest dance halls in, in Texas. Um, and, and we went for it. And so, you know, we bought that property as well. Um, and we were able to, you know, bring in some of the team that we have from Mountain View Lodge. Um, straight away, bring in a lot of that same playbook. Um, and, and that's been, you know, really, really awesome. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from there, we started seeing opportunities to buy ranches. You know, the difference between managing a small hotel and managing 
you know, a large vacation rental or a small compound with, you know, six or seven casitas. Um, it, it didn't feel so different. Um, and we felt like there was a, a pretty decent arbitrage opportunity where the yields were really, really attractive. Um, and so, you know, since then we bought two ranches. One of them is in Lano. Um, one of them is in Dripping Springs. Um, and then, you know, that's all with our real estate business. So um, Outpost Capital puts together these deals, buys the, buys the properties, and then we hire Wild Ways um, to manage, to manage yeah, these yeah. properties. Can I, can I, um, I, I just, uh, I want to interrupt you because I have a couple questions on this. And um, are you, how are you all thinking from like a branding standpoint, right? Like are, are these all Wilder Ways properties? Meaning like if I, as a, as a guest or are you guys, like is the goal to rebrand all these eventually if, if they haven't been already and, or is it to like retain the existing brand and it just be a property by, you know, Wilder Ways? Like how are you guys thinking about, thinking about that? Yes. So today, I mean, we're operating most of these assets, I would say under almost like a white label. Yeah. Um, yeah while yeah. the ways, I mean, most of the assets that we're taking over are kind of, you know, they, they look a little bit more like your, your grandma's house than, yep. than a cool hip boutique hotel. Um, so what we want at first is, is to bring in a little bit more consistency. So you see the first thing we usually do is, you know, we replace all of the old colorful sheets with really nice white linens we bring in, you know, nice towels, all of just the, the simple luxuries that allow us to, to operate at a level that we feel comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll just keep on operating um, as is, and, and we really focus on making improvements to the financial performance, Yeah. Um, cutting costs where we can, but less so cutting costs, just being more efficient with sure. where we spend our money um, and being a lot smarter with marketing, um, you know, channel management, uh, pricing strategy, um, all of that just to increase the, the the performance of the property. As we're doing that, we're usually planning a renovation. Um, and then it's really during the renovation that we go through uh, a pretty extensive rebrand. Yeah. Um, yeah. From, you know, what what is, you know, what is the story behind the property? And we'll usually craft a story um, and each of them will, will have their own identity. Hmm. Um, so I think it'll be more similar to a bunkhouse where each property has, um, has its own story, has, uh, we're going to want to tie them together and we're going to want people to be able to kind of like, you know, see, oh, wait, th this, this feels like another property that I went to. Yeah. And at yeah, that point yeah. we can say, yeah, I mean, these are sister properties. Yeah, yeah. And so we want to be able to send people back and forth. You know, you can go have a drink in one property and hang out at the pool at the other. And we want to have um, them be connected, sure. but them to still have a separate identity. Yeah. Um, you know, and it'll be the bygone by Wilder yep. or yep. The Palmetto by Wilder. Um, you know, over time, what we think that'll also do is it'll give us the opportunity to figure out what brands really resonate with people. Yeah. You know, it, we might over time have, you know, different sub brands within Wilder. Of course. Um, yeah. One of the things we were pretty adamant about is, is, you know, the Wilder way is not about, is not about, you know, a certain type of person or a certain price point. You know, a lot of my friends, you know, I have a lot of younger friends. I have a lot of older friends. I have a lot of friends that were extremely successful financially and who are, you know, who can pay a thousand dollars a night for a hotel room. And I have others that, you know, never want to spend over a hundred dollars yeah, for a hotel room. Yeah. And what I think is I, I believe that these people should be able to stay, you know, within driving distance from one another, if not in the same hotel. Um, and they would appreciate, um, you know, the same asset, uh, with a slightly different, you know, experience level. And yeah. so, so, so that's what we wanted. We want to be able within the wild aways umbrella 
to have uh, very different price points, which yeah. is also something that I think Bunkhouse did you know, very well. Uh, whether you're staying at the San Jose or the San Cecilia, um, you're getting you know a similar type experience, but at a very different price point. Yeah, dude, you're just you are a wealth of knowledge. This is amazing. Um, you you've really like thought through this stuff, which is which is amazing and, and great, especially because you guys have only been around what like two years, Wilderways. Yeah, yeah, that's two a, years. That's a yeah. shit ton of like learning in in two years, man. That's amazing. Um, I, I have just like one final question for you, and I, I think we could talk all day, and I have so many other questions for you. So I might have to have you back on here, but, um, just final question for now is what, like, what's something that you're super bullish on in like the STR or, or hospitality space. So like some, some idea that, you know, maybe, maybe it's even like a hot take right around like something going on in the industry that you are really excited about and you think is, is going to revolutionize kind of the way that people, uh, experience travel, the expectations that consumers have of, of hospitality, et cetera. Um, yeah, I, I think I don't, you know, a lot of the times and I try to tell the team this every day, you know, we don't need to revolutionize anything to build a really, you know, successful and meaningful company and brand. Um, you know, we're not curing cancer. Um, yeah, yeah. But, and I think it's important to kind of like remember um, that every day. I think what I'm really, really excited is on, you know, creating truly curated and tailored experiences. I yeah. think, um, you know, one thing that Airbnb did, which, which truly changed the way people travel is they unlocked inventory, um, in places which had for a very long time been almost like inaccessible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you are now able to visit places and stay and, and visit places in a certain way that you weren't able to do before. Yeah. And yep. I think that's, that's incredible. And that was like the power of Airbnb what was for me that was, was unlocking all of this new, these new hotels effectively because an Airbnb is just a mini hotel. Yeah. And I think that was incredible. I think my, my problem with it was that, you know, and, and they're trying to solve that with their experience as part of their platform, but what they haven't been able to do so far in my mind is, is connect those two Yeah, is find a way to uh, integrate their experiences with their their products in a way that was, you know, frictionless. And I think that for me is, is a massive, massive opportunity. Um, I always talk about it with Franklin, you know, if I, you know, sit at, at a hotel pool next to you, um, I could sit next to you for five hours and I might never speak to you. If suddenly, um, you know, someone comes out and they decide to do a bingo game around the swimming pool or, or some sort of activity, um, there's a very high chance that I'm going to speak to you because <laughs> that activity uh, broke this invisible barrier and made me comfortable yeah. speaking to you. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I think that, you know, activities and, and um, programming brings people together. Yeah. And so I think that there's a massive opportunity in this kind of like boutique hospitality space to bring people together through programming. Yeah. Um, and I think some brands have done a good job with it. Others um, are trying to, um, you know, this concept of like adult summer camps, I think is something that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that we can bring people, you know, like-minded individuals together in a space um, and, and make them interact uh, without necessarily using technology. You know, the idea that, you know, today, if you want to go on a date, you go on a dating app, um, if you want to meet friends now, you're going on, on friend apps. Yeah. Um, you know, we live in this crazy new digital world. Um, and I feel like, 
you know, some people love it, but there's a lot of people who are trying to fight back. And I think that us in hospitality, we can be a huge part of that. And so I, I really do see a world in which, you know, down the line, when we're operating, you know, a hundred properties uh, across the U.S., we can start um, designing properties that have um, a very specific focus and intent. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, whether it's uh, a fly fishing camp or a cooking camp, um, you know, and doing and creating places where people go to for something uh, and where they can meet people and they know that every given weekend, um, you know, their stay is going to be focused around something. Um, and, and that could even be, you know, an educational component. Yeah. You know, people want to learn when they travel. Um, and so if we can do that, I think that there's a, a massive opportunity there to build a truly differentiated brand. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so well said, man. Um, well, Hey, I, I, completely confirm um those those ideas and 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 those thoughts and think that there's there the opportunity for this is ripe so looking forward to you all uh being a being a leader in this space but uh for folks who are tuning in that want to learn more i just want to connect with you want to explore more about wilder ways what's the best way for them to get in touch i I think probably just shooting me an email cool um you know love speaking to people in the space i think we can all learn from one another it's also a huge market um you know I, i speak about probably about once every couple of weeks with a few guys who started groups doing you know, very, very similar things in, in other markets. And I think that there's space from, for all of us. And, and I think if anything, if we can elevate these markets together, uh, we'll all be a lot more successful. Um, so, you know, my email is uh, Dylan at wilder ways.com. Um, yeah. I'm always feel free to reach out. Awesome, man. And we'll throw that in the show notes and we'll throw your website in the show notes as well. So if you're listening to this and want to get in touch with Dylan, just scroll on down and connect with them via email or via the website. All right, man. Thank you so much for your time. This is great. Awesome. Thanks. Hey friends, hope you've enjoyed today's show. If you are an Airbnb host or know an Airbnb host who'd like to come on the show, please send me an email at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at spontaneous.com and we will chat. Behind the Stays is brought to you each week by Spontaneous, a carefully curated weekly newsletter that brings you the best last minute deals and upcoming steals on Airbnb. It's sort of like Scott's cheap flights, but for Airbnb. You can sign up once again for free at spontaneous.com. Last but certainly not least, I didn't believe in Marie Kondo's whole spark joy mantra until I started podcasting. Now, my joy is sparked every time I see a new subscriber roll in. So please hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and so you add a little spark to my joy fire today. Okay, that was kind of weird, but um, we're going to roll with it. Subscribe, um, and thanks in advance. All right, everyone, see you next time.